Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to begin reading in verse 37. And I'll be reading through chapter 24, verse 2. This is Jesus speaking. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. As Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Then he asked them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to be seated. As we begin this series uh, through Advent on the second coming of Jesus, I thought it might be helpful before we start talking about the cycle of history uh, to see uh, a little message from one of my favorite comedians. If I can get this to work, we'll give it a shot. I can never mind which way is on. There we go. So a couple weeks ago, we go to the track. I, haven't, I did that a couple of times in my life. Betting on the horses. It can't possibly win. I don't even understand what we're betting on. I mean, do the horses know that it's a race? Are they aware? Well, what is going on here? After the race of the horses walking back to the stable, I was third. I was first. I was ninth. I think they're thinking, oat bag. I get my oat bag now. Oat bag time. I got a bet on this idiot. I mean, I'm sure the horses have some idea that the jockey is in a big hurry. I mean, he's on him. He's hitting him with the thing. He's going, come on, come on. This is obviously, he, he's in a hurry. The jockey's in a hurry. But the horse must get to the end and go, we were just here. What was the point of that? This is where we were. That was the longest possible route you could take. Why didn't we just stay here? We would have been first. (laughs) In some ways, that little story of the horses going along the track is the story of humanity throughout our history. It seems like we just keep following the same cycle over and over and over again. In fact, we're going to learn a lot about this cycle during this series, and so that's why I have it up here on the screen. I want to talk through it just a little bit. But history, and you read this throughout the scriptures, for the prophets of Israel, the apostles of Jesus, history is cyclical. It continues to repeat itself over and over and over again. For those of us who were together for that series through Judges, which some of you are trying to forget and praying that the Lord will take away, uh, you notice that this is the cycle that we find in the book of Judges. But it's not only in the book of Judges. It's a cycle that repeats itself as you read through the scriptures. It starts in the Garden of Eden and cycles through Genesis several times and cycles through the Exodus and cycles through the wandering in the wilderness and cycles through the conquest of the Holy Land and it cycles through the judges and it cycles through the kings and it cycles not... It doesn't stop. The cycle doesn't stop just because Jesus comes. This cycle repeats and has continued to repeat for 2,000 years of church history. This is a never-ending cycle that we seem to fall into. This is a cycle that for the Jewish people and for the, the prophets of Israel, the apostles of Jesus, the writers of Scripture, defines the track that humanity takes through history. Families, individuals, communities, cultures, nations, 
It begins with revelation. God comes and speaks some kind of a word. The very first one he spoke to the people was, you may eat from any tree that you find in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge, good and evil, you may not eat of that one. That's the revelation of God. And the story happens very, very quickly. The cycle begins for the very first time. Humanity lives into rebellion. And it rejects the teaching, the revelation that God gives, and chooses to carve its own path through life in the world. And so Adam and Eve eat of that tree. And they enter into a cycle of rebellion. And then what happens, and this is so important, some of you are getting so tired of this. I've been talking about this for a year, but it's got to all come to roost this month in December as we go through this series. But when God created the universe initially, he created it as chaos according to the prophets of Israel. The natural state of the universe is lifelessness, darkness, disorder. And then what God begins to do is he begins to organize the chaos by setting up boundaries, and within those boundaries, life can exist. So the first boundary he makes is between light and darkness. And the second boundary he makes is between the waters. He carves out in the midst of that chaos a space for life, and the space in between it he calls the heavens. And then he raises up a platform for life on day three, in which we're going to live and move and walk around the earth. And he raises that up on day three. And then he, once he set the boundaries, light and darkness, the chaos has been separated and there's the heavens. And then the earth is situated as a habitable space for humanity. Then he begins to work on what he has separated by filling it. And he fills the land with vegetation. And then he fills the, the heavens the, the, with the sun, moon, and the stars. And he fills the, the sky with birds. And he fills the oceans with living creatures. And then he organizes organizes life on the earth, and finally he creates humanity. This story, and we've been going over it and over it and over it and over it again, I'm hoping that you're going to be able to tell it by heart, is absolutely essential. But I feel like I need to tell it to you again, because I had a conversation just this week that makes it clear you're not listening fast enough. <laughs> Listen, when, when God brings this next cycle, you might think I would have put judgment or discipline because that's typically the experience of humans after rebellion. But that's not, in fact, biblically what's happening. What is happening is that humanity in its rebellion is saying, we want to be God. We don't need anyone telling us what to do. Thank you very much. And so God withdraws. That's why I have removes. He removes the barriers that he is maintaining for life to thrive. We ask him to go and he goes. And when God goes, the protective barriers go with him and the chaos begins to leak into creation and it becomes perilous again. It doesn't mean, this is where I know we're not listening yet, it doesn't mean that he chooses each judgment that falls, each bad thing that happens. It doesn't mean that he tells the lightning bolts where to go. That's not what the scriptures say. But it does mean that he's responsible for what happens because when he withdraws, the chaos floods in. And it comes in and does all kinds of stuff. And he knows all that it's going to do. He knows full well what that is. And he knows it's his fault for withdrawing, but it's our fault for asking him to go. This is the tension of the scriptures. And so God, in response to humanity's rebellion, does exactly what we've asked him to do. Leave us alone! And he says, okay, but you're not going to like what happens when I leave you alone. Because you're only alive because I'm not leaving you alone. But we'll let you take a look at it. 
The first big time this happens is with the flood. And so that space that God created, a habitable space for life to exist in the heavens, he lets the floodgates of the heavens open and the fountains of the deep burst forth and the waters of chaos begin to come back and the heavens shrinks to such a small little habitable space that only an ark can survive. And he keeps just them, everything else is destroyed. Goes back to what it was before he started creating. And then by his grace, he expands the heavens again. The waters recede and the cycle starts over. Right? And it's a quick one too with Noah. He rebels almost immediately after getting off the ark. It's an interesting story. But the response to human rebellion is that God removes his hands of protection. And what the prophets want us to know is you and I cannot live without God's hands of protection. The universe will return to what it was. And then in that period of removal, people start to get the idea that they can't make it on their own. The problems of the world tend to start to become too big for them to solve. And they start to realize that the world is a little more dangerous than they thought it was. And that nature is a little more chaotic than they believed it was. And their minds are a little less adequate than they thought they were to to take care of the world and make their way in it. And they start to feel very helpless, like kind of ants in a flood. And they realize we're going to need some help from outside of this thing. And up until today, that help has always been thought to come from God. Today, I think we're still hoping that we can manage the chaos without him. But that usually leads people into repentance, a time in which they recognize that the way that they've been going is not giving them the life that they hoped they would achieve by it. And they begin to turn back to the ways of their ancestors, turn back to the ways of God. And that's usually a period of repentance. And God, for one reason or another, is ridiculously hopeful and he keeps forgiving. And so in repentance, God begins to take the steps to restore his people. And after the period of restoration, he then comes to them again with a word. Sometimes to reiterate things he's already said. Sometimes to give them new information like what happened at Mount Sinai or in the ministry of Jesus. And so the revelation of God begins anew. And the hope of God, it seems, is this time they'll obey. This time, they've, How many times have they followed this cycle? This time they'll obey. And yet just about every Every time, rebellion follows the revelation of God, however long it takes. But even though this is a cycle, it's not to say that for the Jewish people, for the people of Israel, for the people who wrote the scriptures and gave them to us, who God selected through Abraham to be his unique spokespeople for all time. It's not as though this is just history and it's not going anywhere. In fact, uh, this cycle repeats and repeats and repeats, but it's also moving in a trajectory. So it kind of is like this spiral where we keep repeating the same patterns, but it is heading somewhere. It's heading to the last turn of the wheel at some point in history. On the last turn of the wheel, Jesus will return in a period of restoration, removal, repentance, restoration. This is what um, the book of Revelation tells us. And then God will reveal what we were here for with the new heavens and the new earth. So there will be a final turn, which Jesus returns, judgment comes, and all things are made new. But this is the cycle. And it's the cycle that the, 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 the writers of scripture were inspired to see throughout all of human history. And I want you to, I'm probably going to spend more time than I should here. But I want you to really, really think about this cycle and how it affects your life, the life of your family, the life of your neighborhood, the life of your church, the life of your culture, the life of your country, 
and how this cycle continues to repeat over and over and over again. Where are we right now on that cycle? I want you to think about that. If you've been paying attention over the last year and a half, you know where I think we are. I want to talk just momentarily about the temple because that's what this passage that we're going to talk about is about. And Jesus is putting the temple back onto that cycle. And he's indicating that they are on a period in which God is going to remove his protective hands from the temple in Jerusalem. And the chaos is going to flood in. Within 40 years of Jesus saying that, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. So it's one of Jesus' most powerful predictions. And at least one of the Gospels was written before it came true. So if you're one who thinks a true prophet should predict the future, well, there's one that's been sitting in front of you for your whole life. In the Gospel, according to Mark, when Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, 40 years before it happens, and Mark probably written 10 years before it actually occurred. Matthew and Luke written afterwards, some people think, oh, they just put that in because it happened and now you can of course predict things you already know were going to happen so that's Matthew and Luke but not Mark Mark was written first so you can wrestle around with that but the temple is what this passage is all about and it's usually around the temples that the judgment falls in the people of Israel and so that's why we're talking about all of this the temple represents God's presence with his people I know this is a lot of lecture, and I, if I've lost you, I apologize, but you've got you to gotta listen to this, folks, because it could change everything you think about everything. So God does not dwell in heaven originally. Heaven is not where God comes from. We don't know where God comes from. It's another reality entirely. But the heavens are part of this creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the heavens are a specific place in this creation. They are between the waters. They are the space in which the earth rises in. So it's all that empty space, starting from right here where you and I are walking, all the way up into the farthest reaches of the universe that we can see what scientists call space-time. That's the heavens. And God fills the heavens the scriptures tell us. Which is why David can say, where can I go from your presence? How could I flee? You can get on a rocket ship and take it to Mars. Still there, because he's in the heavens, right? And yet, to be everywhere is kind of to be nowhere, right? I mean, if God is everywhere, then where really is God? And so you and I can go hunting for his presence, right? Where is he? Well, at every stage of history, God has promised to mediate his immediate presence in some way. And in the days of Jesus, the temple was that place. At least they thought that was the only place. But the truth that the disciples came to understand was that God was moving his glory out of a building, out of the temple, and that the Holy Spirit of God was dwelling in a person, the person of Jesus. He was the temple. And if you've been with us through this 1 Corinthians series, you know that when he ascends into the heavens, he now calls the church his body. Which means we are that temple today. Not this building, you and me, those who put their faith in Jesus. We are the temple. 
And Jesus says this to all who would be his temple, whether we're talking brick and mortar in Jerusalem, or whether we're talking about you and I and every congregation of believers that has assembled ever since. He says, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a verse I want to keep before us as we journey through this. I may not finish this whole sermon today, so don't panic. But uh, we'll pick up where we need to. We're going to explore three realities revealed to us by Matthew that might help us to understand not only what God has done in the past, or what he was about to do in the immediate presence of the text, but also what he has been doing throughout the history of humanity on earth. We're going to look first at the heart of God, secondly at the haughtiness of humanity, And third, at the healing of the nations. And I want you to remember that I said third was the healing of the nations. I get one comment all the time after the sermons, always. What was the third point? And I'm guessing because by then everybody's too tired to listen. Um, But uh, the healing of the nations is the third point. You can pass that quiz if you're asked, right? The heart of God, the haughtiness of humanity, and the healing of the nations. Let's look at the heart of God. Look back at the text there in verse 37 of chapter 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So what Jesus has just described there, in short form, is the cycle of history that we've been discussing. How many times have I come to you with prophets, given you revelation from God, and I've wanted to gather you together and make you my people, but you rebelled, and you refused to let it happen. So what's going to happen next? Your city's going to be left to you desolate. I'm going to remove my hedges of protection. I'm going to give you exactly what you want. You can be your own gods. You can make your own way in the world. And I'm, going to, I'm telling you, how many times do we have to go around this rodeo before we realize what happens every time I withdraw? And yet at every turn of the screw, you want me out of here. Every turn of the screw, you want there to be no God. You want to make your own rules. You want to follow your own hearts. You want to live by your own conscience. You don't want to listen. Every single time and every time the same thing happens over and over and over and over again. And though I have so longed not to have this be your future, here we are again. The same place. Tens of thousands of years maybe. The same place. Over and over again. But the reason this cycle exists is not because of us, but because of God. Because this cycle should end. At some point, he should say, you know what? If you don't want anything to do with me, then fine. We're done. Remove his presence completely. The waters rush in and it's all over, right? But the reason that doesn't happen, and this is what Jesus is saying, is because God has not given up on us. He just won't fully remove himself. He just keeps... Believing in you and me. He just keeps hoping for us. He just keeps believing that at one of these turns, we will not rebel. That at some point, he will tell us something and we will do it. He just keeps believing that it will happen. And because God won't quit, this cycle keeps happening. And he gives us time to repent. And when we do, he restores us. And he brings us back and he tells us again what he wants. And then he hopes, right? This is Jesus. How I wanted to gather you under my wings. How I want to stop and break the cycle. But you just won't let it happen. Because sin is too much fun and it makes too much sense. And it's so safe. Nothing can express the compassion of God 
quite like Jesus did when they were crucifying him. And he said those words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That's Jesus, right? I mean, they're killing God. How, how much worse a rebellion could there be? I mean, you'd think he would ask God, this is it, just take it all away. They're even killing me. They got to be done. There's nothing more we can do. But Jesus asks for time. He asks for another turn of the wheel as he's dying on that cross. He asks for the cycle to repeat again by his grace. That movie, The Passion of the Christ, uh, which has a lot of apocryphal sort of things in it that aren't in the scriptures, and one of the apocryphal things I, I liked. Uh, this moment when Jesus is walking, he's carrying the cross and he's bloodied from the beatings. And some of you may remember this scene. It was a very powerful uh, scene. And he falls down right at an alleyway and his mother is watching him. Do you remember this scene? For those of you who saw it. And Jesus looks at his mother and he says, look, mother, I make all things new. Amazing scene. It's not in the scriptures, but it catches the spirit of what the gospels tell us about Jesus. He just won't give up on us. It's what sent him to the cross. And what the scriptures tell us is that as long as God is extending grace to humanity, this wheel will continue to turn. It's when God is done with grace that the wheel will stop and Jesus will come back and he'll break the cycle himself with final judgment. Jesus will come again on the last turn of the wheel. And the thing is, and you, a lot of you probably have struggled with the fact that the church has always thought Jesus was coming. <laughs> yeah, every generation, they think Jesus is coming. And there are some here today that we think Jesus is coming. And it's because the wheel keeps turning and we don't know which one is going to be the last one. Right? I mean, we kind of know the season. We know that there's going to be rebellion and God's going to remove and punishment. Then there's going to be repentance. This is what the, the book of Revelation says. And then the restoration is going to come and the new heaven and the new earth will come down. And it'll, So, the reason the church continues to be confused is because we keep identifying ourselves on this wheel and we keep hoping it'll be the last turn of the screw. But it's not because the church is foolish or because it wants to escape. It's because history keeps repeating itself that we keep getting deceived. But one of these times will be the last one. And woe to the generation on whom that last one comes because it means God's grace has ended. But the heart of God is for this cycle to repeat as long as there's hope for humanity. And he doesn't seem to give up on us. Second point is the haughtiness of humanity. The thing in us that keeps us in that cycle, that keeps us in rebellion against God. Look at chapter 23, verses 38 to 39. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Why does humanity rebel over and over again? Why do you rebel in your life over and over again? Why have I done that? Why, does, why do churches keep doing that? Why do communities keep doing that? Why do cultures keep doing that? And I'll tell you, the scriptures tell us why. Because we are continually infected by a lie that was told us at the very, very beginning. The scriptures say it was the lie that the serpent first whispered into the ears of man and woman. And it's a lie that has been so pernicious that it has continued to deceive humanity from that day to this. And it's this one. That we may seize life by eating from the tree of knowledge. That we may seize life and God-likeness by eating from the tree of knowledge. That the way to life is through knowledge. 
that the way to God-ishness, God-likeness, deity, is through knowledge. Tell me we're not still believing the same thing Adam and Eve did. Tell me we're not still believing that humanity's future is in its pursuit of knowledge and technology and science. Tell me it's not. It's the same old story. They told it thousands of years ago and we continue to live into it. In fact, the very heart of the rebellion of humanity against the revelation of God is the desire to be gods without him. The desires to achieve on our own merits what God would give us by grace. We've bought this lie. A lie that we can seize what the scriptures tell us can only be given. Life can only be given. And yet we keep trying to find ways to seize it so that we don't have to receive it from a God we want nothing to do with. The cycle repeats itself so many times in the scriptures, it's hard actually to pick a a story to share. But I'm going to pick one, the last martyr ever killed by the people in Jerusalem, which is a man named Zechariah. I'm going to read this. This is from Second Chronicles 24. Now, after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and did obeisance to the king. If you're ever going to do a study on the best priests in the history of the people of Israel, there are two names should come to mind, Aaron and Jehoiada. And Jehoiada, I think, is better than Aaron. This is the greatest priest. He is such a good priest that God gives him 130 years of life at a time where most people are dying in their 60s and 70s. So it's an amazing long lifespan. And as long as Jehoiada is alive, the people are faithful. But he dies and things go poorly. So after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and did obeisance to the king. Then the king listened to them. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and served the sacred poles and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. That's revelation, right? They testified against them, but they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God took possession of Zechariah, son of the priest Jehoiada. He stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. But they conspired against him. And by command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. This is the last martyr in the Hebrew arrangement of the Bible. Zechariah. This is what Jesus is talking about. Every time I send you the truth, you kill the messenger. Every time you don't like what he says. And that happened too with Jesus. History is cyclical and it's progressive. And because of this, the Lord continues to give humanity the same opportunities over and over again. And in each turn of the wheel, we are offered life from God. Or life from the tree of knowledge. And this is true of your personal walk with God. It's true of your family's walk with God. It's true of your church's walk with God. It's true of our country's walk with God. This cycle repeats over and over again. Wheels within wheels within wheels within wheels. You've heard that somewhere, right? It's in Revelation. The heart of God is to continue to let the wheel turn until we break the cycle. The haughtiness of the nations is to believe that we don't need God to tell us what is right and life-giving in this world. That we can find it on our own. We can secure it by our own efforts. Finally, the healing of the nations. Chapter 24, look at verses 1 and 2. As Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Then he asked them, you see all these, do you not? 
Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. So Jesus is predicting a few things there. He's predicting that in just a short period of time, a couple of decades, the temple that they so loved and thought was so beautiful would be destroyed. Little principle, right? Just because you built it and you love it doesn't mean God wants to keep it standing. That's just a little lesson from the people of Israel. So, so God's going to destroy that temple. It also is a prediction of Jesus' own death because he is the temple of the Holy Spirit, though they didn't know it. And he too was going to be torn down and in three days raised to new life, right? This is a little history of how God has mediated his presence in the midst of the heavens with his people. Most of these we don't know how long. From Eden to the flood, we don't know how many years that was. The scriptures don't really say. Uh, God walked with the faithful. So in his, God's presence was immediate early on in humanity's history. He walked with Adam even in the garden. He made them clothing. And he even walked with their ancestors, I mean their descendants. So the, a man named Enoch, we're told, walked with God and then was no more. So the immediacy of God's presence was palpable in this time. It didn't make them very righteous. This is the time in which they became so wicked, he decided to destroy all life except for one family. The second period is from the flood to 1446 B.C. We don't know exactly how long that is. It all depends on if you think every generation is listed in Genesis or not. And given the way Matthew writes his genealogies, he skips generations. So I'm guessing we might not have a full record there. We, we don't know how long. But from the flood to 1446 BC, this is the days of Abraham and Joseph and, and those folks. Um, God is mediating his presence through angels. So there's nowhere that they can go. God has to come to them. He comes through angels and tells them what he wants. Then beginning in 1446 to 966, a 480 year period, God agrees that he is going to dwell in the tabernacle and anytime his people want to commune with him or communicate with him, they go to the tabernacle. So for 480 years, that's where God agrees to be in the heavens. Then... In 966 BC, from 966 to 586, another uh, 380 years, Solomon builds a temple and that becomes the place in which God agrees to dwell. And so the people know that if they want to commune with God or communicate with him during those 380 years, this is where they need to go, the temple in Jerusalem, that's Solomon's temple. That temple was destroyed because of the people's failure to obey the covenant. And that sends them into 70 years of exile in which there is no guaranteed place they can go to commune with God or to communicate with him. And in that period, God speaks only through prophets. This is the life of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and so on. Then, in 516 BC, the Jewish people returning from exile are able to reconsecrate a second temple. And so... That's called the second temple. The second temple period follows it. And from then until AD 70, about 40 years after Jesus rose from the dead, 586 years, the second temple was where God had promised to commune with his people and to communicate with them. And then from Jesus' resurrection to the present day, God's presence has promised to dwell in the community of faith. And we've had a living temple. You and I are part of that temple. Where two or three are gathered, God's presence will be in their midst. So this is the history of God's presence on the earth. And what I want you to see in this thing is that when God brings promises to the temple, at Solomon's temple, or to the second temple, or through angels, or in the tabernacle, those promises now speak to the church. Because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The warnings given 
and the blessings promised. We are that temple. We are a living temple. And to rebuild the community of faith, to build one another up, is to rebuild a temple of praise for God. We read this verse in our worship set. This is how Paul explains the church. So he, Jesus, came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and peace to those who were near, the Jewish people. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer, you Gentiles, you and me, if we, you know, are not strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. We are the temple today. And so the question is, if we fall into apostasy, if we fall into rebellion, if we bring idols into his presence as the living temple of God, will he punish us or is that just Old Testament stuff? Well, have you studied the history of the church? Protestant Reformation? The revivals and renewal? God has continued to judge the church the same way he judged the ancient people of Israel. The cycle has never stopped just because the temple is something different. So this is how we're going to conclude today. You think this is the conclusion? Yeah, we're just starting a series. I know a lot of you are accustomed to coming once a month, and that's your regular attendance. It's going to hurt you this month. You want to be here for all of these services if you can, even if you have to change travel plans, because I'm telling you, I really believe God is going to do something special here on Christmas Eve morning. But I'm not sure you'll have eyes to see it if you just come back on that day. Ephesians, I mean, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 12 to 22. This is what God promised Solomon he would do in the temple that Solomon built for him. And I really do believe that this is now, these are now promises that are transferred to the community of faith gathered, to you and I. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. You've heard that, that quoted, but you didn't hear it quoted right. Because this is not a promise that God will generally hear anyone who prays. It's not what he's promising. What he's promising in, if you come to the temple and pray, I'll hear it. Not if you go out to the hills or to the mountains or to the rivers or to the fields. If you come to this temple, I will hear. And that temple now is you, gathered together, the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you don't think that that's the way the New Testament writers are understanding your gathering here in worship, you misunderstand. The the book of James tells us in the New Testament that if you're sick or if you're injured or if you need to be forgiven, that you need to come and confess it to the body of believers. Have the elders of the church lay hands on you and you will be healed. Do you see? He thinks the promises made to the Old Testament temple now are fulfilled in the gathered community of Jesus. Now my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Not any prayer, right? Are you reading contextually now? The prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house so that my name may be there forever. 
My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. As for you, Solomon, he's talking to him, who's leading this assembly at the time. If you walk before me as your father David walked, doing according to all I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I made covenant with your father David, saying, you shall never lack a successor to rule over Israel. I apologize. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I've set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from this land that I've given you and this house which I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And regarding this house, now exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods, worshipped them, and served them. Therefore, he's brought all this calamity upon them. If you think of this as written to popes and bishops and pastors and heads of households, you see this cycle of prophecy repeated over and over again. Protestant Reformation is a, is a fulfillment of this prophecy against the corruption of the papacy in Rome. And there were others. And Protestants ourselves, through our hypocrisies, have faced the same judgment. God's promises is that now you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but God takes very seriously whether or not we will break the cycle and we will submit to his revelation or whether we will live into rebellion and the cycle will repeat. This is the cycle of history. My discernment, if you were with me during the Judges series, is that we are presently in a time of rebellion on the cusp of God's removal of his presence. I don't know that it's the last turn of the wheel. I have no idea. How would I know that? (laughs) But... This is the turn of the wheel when Jesus will return, according to Revelation, is at this point. But of course, it's happened many times. It may happen many more yet. But we are at that point, and you can see it in our culture, with all the stirring up of the sins of people being broadcast. I I told my Sunday school class a couple weeks ago that I really believe social media is God's fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy that nothing will be hidden that will not be made known. And so for those of you who think that, the, that, that social media is Satan's tool, well, I got word for you. I think God is bringing that about. I think, uh, don't war against the Lord. But I, I have a sense that, that that's part of his fulfillment, that, that all the, the way in which nature, which we're calling global warming, and global warming could be a consequence of us not listening to God too, if, if it's even true. And if you don't think it's true, well, then just the upheaval we're seeing in nature. All of that is just a consequence of God's removal. And if you have any doubt that we've been living through a season of rebellion in the United United States, you and I have to sit down and talk. I mean, have you had your eyes open? So we expect these cycles to repeat, and God removes his protective hands. It doesn't mean he chooses to send the hurricane at Houston, but he does remove his hands, and hurricanes are going to get bad. I mean, that's the way it goes. So if I'm right about this, we are moving into a period in the cycle of history in which repentance is absolutely necessary if restoration is ever to come. So here's my challenge for us in this series, and this is for each of you individually. Are there idols, compromises, in your life? Are you living in rebellion against what you know in your heart God is asking you to do? If you are, this is the time to repent. Not because Jesus is coming back, though he may be, but because this is where we are. This is where we are in the cycle. And most people will remain blind to God's activity and fail to repent. And that is a scary moment 
for them. But for those of us with eyes to see, this is the time to repent. It's not a time to double down on your justifications for your behavior. It's not a time to double down on why you think everything that's going on in the world has nothing to do with God. It's not time to double down on your doubts. It's not time to double down on... This is the time, if I'm right about where we are in the cycle, and you have to interpret this with God. I'm not the one who speaks for you, but I think this is where we are. And if it is, you and I need to repent. And the question is, will we have the courage to do it? Because every king in the history of Israel who knew that they needed renewal in their time, that their people were living in wickedness, they were always able to do some things and give some things to God. But there were a lot of things that they wouldn't do. It would have been too hard. It would have offended people. It might have been too difficult for people to swallow. So the question for you today and for me is, do we as a church have the courage to get rid of all the idols? Do we have the courage to stop explaining why we don't have to follow Jesus and start going out in our daily lives really following him? I'm telling you, that's important when we're in a series of revelation. It's important in restoration. But when God is removing his hands, it's everything. So for you and for me, it doesn't mean we'll be safe. Jesus promises that we can be persecuted because of righteousness. It doesn't mean that we're rich because God seems to value treasures in heaven more than he does treasures on earth. It doesn't mean that we won't suffer. But what it does mean is that this is the moment with those with eyes to see, have to see that this is God's work. What's happening to our world. And we need to repent. You can't persuade anyone else that that's true. But the faithful will see it. And the faithful will repent. And the faithful will turn to Jesus. I hope that that means everyone here will turn, but I think that that's not the case. Not because I know, but because I suspect the law of averages and all. So what will we do, church? We're going to sing, in conclusion, the Shema. For those of you who know the tune, I welcome you to sing it with us. But we're going to reaffirm together that there is only one voice that we are to listen to. And it is the voice of the Lord our God. And when judgment comes, when God's withdrawal comes, Peter tells us that judgment begins with the church. And then it falls on the culture. Tell me that's not being fulfilled. Where did the sex scandals first get revealed? In the church? Roman Catholic Church first, and then the Protestant churches, and we've seen more and more sex scandals. So tell me that the judgment didn't start with the church. But now it's happening to the world, isn't it? Now all their sex scandals are all being revealed. After all of their pointing at the church going, look at how hypocritical those people are. Look at how corrupted they are. Us in secular society, we would never do this. Religion is obviously part of the problem. Well, now it's their turn. They get to see how corrupt they are. And it's sad that we weren't less corrupt. But we're no more corrupt. And God's judgment will show it. But in seasons of God's judgment, the faithful cry out to Jesus. The faithful come to worship, knowing that God has promised to be with us where his people are gathered. The faithful repent of their sins. The faithful return to the revelation of God and ask to hear again what it is God would want. And the faithful, maybe this turn of the wheel, will have the courage to take down all the Asherah poles, to knock down all the idols of Baal, 
to really thoroughly give ourselves to Jesus? Maybe? Or will the cycle repeat? I don't know when Jesus is coming. But I know that this is the moment Revelation tells us on one of the turns of the wheel that he will come. This one, maybe. Maybe we'll all be dead. But this wheel will repeat unless we find a way to break it. And we'll never break it for the world. They're going to be on this wheel until, until the end comes. That wheel is a secular wheel. It's not, but the church, can the church get off of it? Can the church be faithful? How long can we extend the green of revelation before the brown of rebellion falls? One generation? Two? I don't know, but it starts with you and with me. Doesn't it? Heavenly Father, this is your day. This is your world. Help us to discern our time. Help us to return to you in the day of salvation. And help us to be a light in this dark places. In Jesus' name, amen.